I've got a guest that might surprise you on this show, the woman of the river. And I've got Lou Steiger as my co-host, and the two of us are kind of going to interview Georgie, or at least get some sound bites from Georgie by her own tongue. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to have some of this work that Lou has done uh, with so many different people uh, relevant to Grand Canyon and all of the above. But today we've got Georgie White for you. So thanks for doing the hard work that you have done, Lou. And I welcome you back. And uh, could you kind of give us just a quick uh, synopsis of your interview with Georgie White? And then uh, let's hear Georgie. This was like the first oral. I didn't even know about oral history then or, or any. This was one of the first interviews I ever did. And looking back on it, now I'm kind of proud of myself that I kept my mouth shut as well as I did and just let Georgie be Georgie (laughs) because the thing about her is you wind her up and get her going. I mean, she was really something else. She was from a different time, but you, but it was, I'm proud of myself that I stayed out of her way uh, and let her be herself because she was an amazing character. (laughs) Uh, Definitely one in 5 billion. One it's really interesting to me. Georgie started out swimming the river, and uh, which seems pretty radical. I think, and I'm not sure how that time-wise, according to her, I guess that was, it's interesting. There's a parallel there with these other two guys that swam the river, Bill Beer and John Daggett. These, those two guys swam the river in the 1950s and, and attracted national attention for doing it. And in my mind, that was a big shot in the arm for river running in the Grand Canyon. People were scared to do it. You hear Georgie say time and again that she couldn't get passengers to go because nobody, everybody was too scared to go. <clears throat> and, uh, but the interesting parallel there is that I was lucky enough to get to talk to Bill Beer and, and the, what most people didn't know, what, what inspired him and John Daggett to swim the river John Daggett had suffered this terrible tragedy wherein he had lost his whole family. His wife had taken the kids in the car. They were doing an errand, and the, and the car stalled on a train track. And, um, and when wow. they, Yeah, and when they did their swim, uh, he was kind of trying to do himself in. He was out of his mind uh, with grief, and, and, a lot, and so was Georgie when, when she— and I didn't learn this from her. I learned this from a good friend of hers, Teresa Yates, who worked with her. And, you know, they got to be really close. And, and I heard all this from Teresa. But Georgie had a daughter. Uh, and maybe you heard some of this stuff. Did well, you ever I, talk? I had the conversation with her. And, and just a, a long story short, as far as that is, uh, Georgie, what, what year was it they rode their bikes? Right from it was Chicago. Right, yeah, it was like after World War Two. Uh, and they got out of Chicago and rode west, and they were on the number one uh, in California, I believe. One. Yeah. Well, they came to California. Yeah. And uh, she and her daughter got hit by a vehicle, a large vehicle. I forget exactly what it was, but they didn't stop. 
they kept going. And so Georgie was trapped uh, with nobody to help. There, it was an isolated highway back then and not, not a lot of traffic and stuff. So she spent, you know, better part of a couple hours, I think, before somebody came along with, with her daughter. And uh, you might fill in the edges on that. You know, I don't know. All I know is the big picture, what I heard from Teresa. I know that her daughter, I think the, what I had in my mind was that her daughter was killed instantly. Yeah, she you knew know, she was dead. That and Georgie was just Well, there. as a matter of fact, one, and uh, I think the first car, or maybe it was even the car that hit him, Georgie ran up. And she felt like she'd made the mistake of saying, I, uh, my daughter's dead. Because it freaked them out and they drove off. Wow. Yeah. And so there was that kind of uh, intense tragedy in Georgie's life. From yeah. Hard to imagine, you know. Yeah. Um, but she was, but it's the way I have it in my mind, so from that experience, she was kind of out of her mind. With no, me. that really makes sense. And, it was a big and, part of her life. Yeah, yeah. And she was just looking for something to do to take her mind off her pain. And she hooked up with this guy, Harry Aylison, somehow. I'm a little fuzzy on that. He's a, this guy that shows up in River History. He's one of these Where's Waldo guys. He's in He's a little fringe character in all these great yeah, stories. Yeah, he, he was everywhere, thing. yet not anywhere, really. You know, he was, yeah. he's not written much about But it. he got her started. They were hiking the lower Grand Canyon, you know, around the head of Lake Mead. And she, according to her, she asked him about the river. It's in this interview where she talks about this guy said somebody could go. And Georgie says, well, if he can go, I can go. <laughs> so let's go. And so they... I think they started first, they went in at Diamond Creek. There was a road where you could go into the river. You know, that was the logical, a logical put in for them. And they drove into Diamond Creek and they jumped in at mile 225 and swam. They did 30 miles down to wherever the head of Lake Mead was. And got picked up. Yeah. And then they, and that went okay. So the next year they, they went a little higher. They went to. To Parasant, was it? I think it was Whitmore. Yeah, I that, there bet, you yeah. go. I you know, would bet you it would be a much easier Logically, access. yeah. I think they drove in there and hiked down the trail and went in there. When I was a kid, there were actually a couple life jackets that they had stashed at Parachute, so I bet Just you're right. Just for that. No kidding. Wow. But on this interview, she, she also said that she hiked in by herself to Phantom Ranch. Then I went by myself, and then I swam from Phantom Ranch down myself. And uh, then that was better. Had a life preserver. You don't say swimming, but in a life preserver. I had a Navy life preserver, and there's nothing as good as a Navy. You walked down to Phantom and just just walked in. in. Well, there's nothing to bother you then. There wasn't anything there. wasn't many people. wasn't no ranger. wasn't nothing. You just simply walked down, walked in the river. What year was that? Uh, that was uh, say I won 45, 46, and 47. Swim once each year. All by yourself? Well, the last time. Was two times as a fill-on in the last time. But that was better because it was just me. I had no problem. How, how do, did you get out and walk around in it? Oh, you couldn't get out then. That's what you don't understand now. Because when I went, it was over 70,000 cubic feet of estimate now that I now know. And because uh, it was high water then all the time. It was in June, so everything was high. And then you had, what gave you problems was the big trees. 
in big whirlpools in those days that you don't have now. You used to have mighty whirlpools, and I'm talking about mighty ones. And uh, then when you got in those, you had to go with it. And uh, then when it popped you out, if you're lucky, it would throw you out of the circle, and then you would go on down. But if you came in that circle, you went back down again, and it went around and around and swooped you right down. And so that's how it was. So you need to get your breath to go down again. And you never know how long you're down. If anybody ever says they do know anything about this stuff, they're lying because you're not keeping track. All you're doing is hanging on to your breath and hoping to get up. And you can use your hand on your nose if you think there's any chance that you're going to let go. And uh, so that's all you're hoping. You're not thinking nothing. <laughs> all you're looking for is that light when you come up. I had a hard time when she said that. I wasn't sure I believed her. I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to question her right then. Because <laughs> I had James Whitey sort of. Well, because <laughs> I had never heard that. You know that 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 was. Yeah, for the, the listener, yeah, there wasn't always easy proof of some of these amazing things people did. You know, oh, yeah. kind of like you know the riding through there on a log. Uh, sort of deal. Well, and Georgie, I had heard other stories. One time I had seen a video, somewhere I saw a movie of her going down the river. It was like from an old TV show and Georgie's going under the Navajo bridge and she, Georgie points up and she goes, okay, everybody, there's Rainbow Bridge. <laughs> We're going under it. <laughs> she was a great storyteller yeah. and you never want to ruin a good story with too much truth. No, no, it's not about, that's the classic river guide thing. You know, we all, everybody invents their little spiels. and Indeed. And, and it, you can get a little too anal about the truth if you're, you know, for the job. To hear Georgie's voice, it really brings me back. Georgie was a... A good friend, and uh, also uh, one of the biggest regrets in my life, Louie, is that I didn't accept her job offer. And uh, a couple quick stories here. She offered me a job, and I was a loyal Grand Canyon youth guy, you know, and I, I kind of, it was a twofold decision I made. Number one, Georgie's style of running the river was unique to the rest of the industry. She started the industry, but it was unique to everybody else's way of doing things. She was, uh, as you will see in our visit with Georgie, as much as we can get it across, she had an absolute opinion on how she was going to do things, and it was probably not real easy to modify her way of doing things. And McCallum would leave me up at the ferry for three days. We'd have a trip we'd rig, and then I'd be up there with the boats, and then the next trip would come in. And uh, I had all this time at the ferry. I, it was Dick McCallum's logistics. It saved him a few well, bucks was, or whatever. I don't know why he did it that way. I, well, because that's how Georgie did it. And didn't he learn from Georgie? Well, Maybe yeah. He and that you had to that was the thing the is Dick McCallum worked for Georgie. He started Grand Canyon Youth. Uh, I was his first employee. And I was a kid. And uh, so it was the way we did it. It wasn't just the way Georgie did it. It was blow up pools instead of tables. And you, it was terrible food. And it was those boats and that style that she had of running down river. Well, even McCallum by then said, you know, there's other ways of doing this. Uh, to give you an idea of the configuration, it's a 33-foot donut tube like they use these days, only they're a little longer than that, but it's still a military donut. 
And then instead of having side tubes like most of us do in the modern day here, she put another 28-foot donut on either side of that central 33-foot donut. She put it in the water without frames or anything and roped all the way down those donuts, tube to tube, wrapped you know, I think they called it hemp or manila or whatever kind of that funky grass rope was, but it was thick. And it took a long time to configure these three boats together. And then uh, I don't remember all the exact details as far as how the framework fit, but for the most part, the boat was all rubber. So is that how come, how did you come to design your boat? It was because it was for those. Well, to get people to go, I started out with a single boat, but I never was one. Uh, after swimming, probably because of my being uh, the rougher type, that I didn't think like other people did. So to me, I didn't think it was that bad to upset and hang on to the boat and ride it and get in. And uh, so, of course, you had to admit all this, and people wouldn't go. So I'm trying to get people. So then I uh, thought about the three boats together. So then I got the three boats tied together, and then it worked so well with those Navy ones that um, those little Navy ones, they just worked so good I knew I had something. But I still couldn't convince people because they look so small because those boats are small. I mean, smaller than the average rowboat now. And uh, so then somehow when I got those three, they first come out, those three big ones, why, boy, I didn't hesitate a minute, and I put three of them together. I mean, Georgie's boat was a classic. I think our generation, we never appreciated her boat until 1983 when we, first, when we saw our first big water. We, we were pretty proud of ourselves growing up and pretty proud of ourselves for our ability to battle the raging river and all this stuff early on. But we had no idea, I, I think, until 1983. That what we the were, real river yeah, was Yeah, we all were about. growing up on this <clears throat> dam-controlled river, and it was a far cry. From, That's a really good point. You know, that, that river was a far cry from the real Colorado. And that was, you know, Georgie's whole thing came from having to deal with the real Colorado. Damn, this changed everything. It's not nature, it never will be. You put dams in, well, that's just what you got. Yeah, you can just figure it's a change forever. A lot hate it now because, of course, they might have, boatmen might like to experience the day before. But as far as people go, they wouldn't uh, be as interested if they had the muddy water all the time. And if it was that high all the time now, the average probably wouldn't go. They'd get very many upsets. And then, of course, no matter where they went, they could upset pretty easy. And that high water, as they found out, even A2, which wasn't high to me, the 70 was not high to me because I was used to having even a lot of 90,000 all the time. And so to me, that was nothing. But to them, it was something. So they, if you put it back now, people still wouldn't go too much on it. Georgie's thing was she didn't want to cheat around any rapids. She, if there was something big in her you rapids, were down there she for the wanted, big rock. Yeah, she wanted to go right down the middle, and she didn't want to go around anything big. She wanted a boat that would, that would take it. Well, from what she had n- knew that we never got in on till '83 is what Louis saying is that it's a do- fairly dormant river compared to those old springtime early summer flows and that's what her lifeblood was and she was she was running much bigger water yeah and going for the meat of the big 
water. I mean, she was going through stuff. Very few, uh, not many people ever went some of the places she went. But the other thing is, she's coming from the man's world down there. You know, all the outfitters are men. All the original outfitters didn't like each other all that much because they did it different. Every outfit did it differently, and they were the only way, you know. It just was kind of a, a bunch of stubborn old goats that got those early <laughs> early permits. They were river runners, free-thinking river runners. But a woman being an outfitter, they weren't all that easy on her about that. And so she compensated for that insult of women can do everything in her mind, and as damn well they can, but she is a great celebration of the equality that women should have this modern age. She, but she had to compensate for it by putting the label woman of the river on her boats in all the way down the side tube. And she was the woman of the river. And she, she had that Las Vegas show woman mentality too. She, it was showtime when she put her program together and it was, it surrounded her and she, she was legendary and, in so many different ways, but her style uh, was like bigger than life, really. It was like, uh, compared to everybody else, she had the biggest boat. She had the rowdiest crews. I mean, uh, I think they might have been drinking on a few of those trips. <laughs> and that's why she had everything padded. Interesting about her boats, when you, when you look at the industry, uh, I remember talking to Bart Henderson at Georgie's party, who and uh, Bart said he was talking to Don Hatch, who was also a river running pioneer. Uh, the Hatch family was doing it before Georgie. Uh, they started in the early 30s, and so they had her beat by about 10 years. Um, uh, anyway, Bart was talking to Don Hatch, and, and Don said, Yeah, they all giggled about Georgie when she first started, but uh, they, they everybody was kind of rolling their eyes at her. and and making fun of her, but pretty soon they started doing what she was doing. <laughs> and Georgie had the idea, you know, inflatable boats that came along, military surplus after World War II, that's what really revolutionized the river business. But um, Georgie had a big part in that. The, the inflatable boats that those guys all used had floors in them, and Georgie was the first one... To cut the floor. To cut the floor out. And... Yeah. Uh, and boy, and boy, was that a good idea. But she said that was a, you know, that was a break of new ground because if you cut the floor out, you know, you didn't know, was the boat just going to stretch out wide? You know, was that floor holding that boat together? What, you know, what would happen when you, when you did that? In retrospect, you know, it, it's totally obvious that that was what to do. But it, it all stemmed from those big real live flows. And it must have been a, a hard, hard pill to swallow Glen Canyon Dam because it it basically took her lifeblood of how she saw the experience of running the river right I mean it it, it tore it just tore it out of you know it was a dormant river to her and a lot of people didn't get that I don't think well the commercial come in when the dam come in so then there wasn't no commercial 
And a few got interested when they heard the word of the dam because then they knew there would be a concession that when a dam came in, it usually meant concessions and all that and park and all that comes with it. And I not known as much as they did, didn't realize how big it would be. But my brother had said to me when he was reading, he said, well, your day is over. You better enjoy it because now with the dam coming in, well, then it will begin to look different because it will make the river 50% safer in the Grand being what it is for scenery, then it will become a tourist highway, was the way he put it. It will become a tourist highway through the water because then it will be tamed down. It won't be like now. And he spoke the word so absolutely true because, of course, he, he was an engineer and he was up on everything more than I was when changing things. So he read it just right because that's just what happened. And I didn't believe him. I couldn't think it would ever be. And when they first paved this road down to Lee's Ferry, that was when it really hit me that things were changing. And then when they put that out in Monument Valley, because I had went over the San Juan and had always carried all this stuff to keep from getting stuck in the sand or to get out if you did get stuck in all the shovels and all. And then when they put the paved road out there, the first time I went on it, I couldn't believe it. Well, I knew things were really on the road out of the rugged area that from there on it was not going to be. It was opening up and it was that day was going to be gone. And it was sure, too, that that one turned fast. But mainly, putting that road into Lee's Ferry made the big turn point. Because, see, even here, you used to have to go down, and you took people by truck from Marble Canyon, even if they came by bus out to here, because uh, you had to ford the Priya River. That's the only way you ever got through. There was no other way. You had to ford the Priya River. And uh, so um, that uh, you had to just know how to get across that all the time. And when you had floods or anything in the summer, rain showers, sometimes it was a problem. And uh, you had people waiting. You had them doing everything to begin with. And then they rode down. The dust used to fly if it was dry. And they were full of dust. So your trips to start with were very ruggeder than they are now. And it's interesting, you know, you talk about passengers. Georgie she would give people a sleeping bag. They didn't get a pad because <laughs> you didn't need a pad. You could just lay down in the sand. You know, we talk about those rubber bags. Uh, her early days, there were canned goods, but the, she didn't, they didn't have Sharpies in those days or whatever. And so the, they'd put all these canned goods in these rubber bags and the bags would get kind of wet and their labels would fall off. And so the routine that Georgie had was, She'd make a big fire and she'd put a big bucket of water, a great big pot, a great big pot of water uh, on the fire. And she'd put all these, she'd dump a bunch of cans in the bucket of hot water and you'd let that boil. And then people, when it was time to eat, she'd say, all right, you know, and everybody would have to come in there and fish out a can (laughs) for themselves. (laughs) And half the time you wouldn't even know. What you were getting, because the label was gone from Fantastic. it. But you would, you would open the can, and then that's what you had to eat. That was it. That was know? dinner. That was it. And, and to her, uh, that, was, that was just fine. That was, you know, she didn't have any trouble with that at all. But that's where it's interesting. She grew up really poor in, the, in Chicago, in the tenements on the, on the waterfront in Chicago. And she basically didn't. Her parents, I mean, they didn't have a pot to piss in. She said she grew up as a kid not knowing where her next meal was coming from. She was no foodie, no, that's and, for sure. And she was she was tough. One of Georgie's great, of, uh, of many famous things that came out of Georgie's mouth, 
uh, there's this story about she had certain disasters on her trips from time to time, whether it would be flip boats or people ending up in the water. And uh, one of her rules was don't get excited because if you get excited, everybody else will think something's going wrong. And she took that to an amazing degree to the point where I think they were at Bass or somewhere and one of her boats had flipped over upstream, one of her small triple rig trips, and they just floated on by and and people kind of questioned her lack of action on the, the their peril or whatever. And she goes, they just don't make them the way they used to. And she really definitely had a scale of toughness that started with her, which was, as she says, tough. And there is a honest, harsh and honest thing about they don't make passengers the way they used to. I mean, we're guides. We've been guides for 50 years, Lou. And there is a different accommodation to the less tough, like Georgie. Uh, we accommodate, and uh, it's a wonderful thing that we've done because, you know, more and more people can see and experience the place than could with this uh, protocol of having to be really tough and eat out of cans. You know, you, you can get kind of both worlds if you have good food and uh, you're comfortable. But she really had that perception that people needed a big boat to be convinced that they could go on the river and it's going to be soft. And if you hang on, you'll survive where she was going to take you. You know, she just had a, she had an old school outlook on tourism. Brilliant, genius level. Because a lot of the doctrine with what she's talking about is people getting out of their lives and being forced to be tough or being forced to do it the way the Colorado River wants you to do it. I mean, that's still, I think, golden words and should be to any anybody that experiences the canyon. Not, you know, th- there used to be this thing that she'd get people to throw their wristwatches in the river. At she the really? start of the trip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good you know, one. I heard a story about her coming up behind you and yanking you to the ground by your ponytail. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's actually a pretty that? good quick story. <laughs> I'm at the ferry and she came over and she, you know, this is later in my career. I've got, I'm working for, and I'd known her for a really long time. And she always, she knew me better too because of McCallum. You know, and she always had a little bit of a burr under her saddle as far as how they departed, and so did he, because it's a great story. She left him in Alaska because the bookings weren't very strong, you know. He drove her to the airport with a rental car, and she's the only one that had a ticket. <laughs> Pretty good story. We'll have to get Dick to tell that story. But um, she had this... Uh, this way about her to where it was almost old fashioned. Like you'd walk up, clear through all my days as close as I felt like we were, you know, you'd ask permission to get up on her boat, you know, permission to board. She had some of those really old fashioned rules. And she started mentioning, maybe you ought to quit working for McCollum over there and come over and work for me. And uh, she finally offered me a job. She goes, I want to give you a job. And, she said, come with me down the ramp, 
And uh, she wanted me to go sit in the river with her. And so we walked out and got in the river. And it's cold water. And especially back then with a higher lake, it was even colder than it is at least Ferry these days. And so I, she had me sit down to where we were up to our shoulders. And she got in my lap and grabbed around my neck and sat in my lap. And uh, had a few tests, I think, or she had a few things to say about toughness. And one of them was, you want to get up and uh, if you'll just step away from how cold the water is and go into it, basically, she's saying, go into a trance or something, you know, and remove yourself from how cold the water uh, is, you won't be cold anymore. Sit here, you'll see it happen. And Sure enough, I think we were in there for about 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, people were on the ramp or staring at us down there. And I think it was her that says, okay, we can get out of the water now. And I kind of, in my trance, followed her out of the water. And then I turned her down on the job, which I do have some regrets about not doing some trips with her. And she was a little mad at me for a while after turning her down. Uh, it was a difficult thing to turn her down, but I think I was scared. <laughs> I honestly think that's why I didn't go to work for her. She was right. We're all scared, and we're, none of us are as tough as she was. I know I wasn't, but uh, kind of a funny thing, too. She, she was the only one I'd let hang on my ponytail to loop that back, I, I, and I, I didn't like it. But she'd hang on to big old Brian's ponytail for some reason. And I go, you know, you have no idea, Georgie. You're the only one I let do that. But do you really have to do it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and she'd laugh and, you know, she's tough. Pain really didn't matter to her. She was at the molecular level. Well, she went through a lot of it, you know, in her life. And I think that was part of what she tried to give her people and I learned this from talking to Teresa Georgie's motto was it's whatever it is that's coming along that's just the way I like it <laughs> you know if it's too hot too cold it's raining it's windy yeah this is just Bring the way it. I, this is just the way I like it that was no kinda... she and you know uh she really did implant a certain toughness on those of us that were lucky enough to be around her and coming from Grand Canyon youth that was the basic mission McCallum had with those trips is to be involved. The food was absolutely not part of the trip. It was an essential thing that you had to do. It was kind of a tough agenda, and our whole role was to make people tougher by doing the trip, right? Not to figure out how tough they were. It was people are going to be a little tougher and get more of that experience from that, you know? And I think that's still a good thing for everybody to remember. You know, I think that she was a genius in a lot of ways. Well, I'm, I'm was so happy looking at it in retrospect. I'm so happy that we kind of figured it out. There's so many times in life where you take people for granted until they're gone. You know, you don't appreciate them. And uh, I think that was darn sure the case with Georgie growing up when I started and you started in the, I know in the early 
you know, early 70s up through the 80s, we just kind of looked down our noses at Georgie. Here was this crazy old lady out here in this crazy boat that was way too big for the river we were on. And, you know, well, yeah, she's he, running he, around in her leopard skin bathing suit. Even <laughs> past my admiration for her, I really didn't want to do things exactly like she well, was no, doing. No, them, but I mean, sure. we, but we definitely did not appreciate her. And you just look at it. Big picture wise, I mean, what a what a character she was. She really she had, she was really one of the Grand Canyon pioneers. The real deal. The real deal, and she had an enormous amount to do. She, you know, there were so many people who got into it because of her. You could say that indirectly, we all did in a lot of ways. One thing I would say too, as prophetic as she is about the taming of the West. I think it's still happening, and we should all keep in mind, you know, just in our lives, the the transition of the equipment and the 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 river and the canyon are the same. Georgie was right about the sand all leaving, and she was right about the lack of the high flows or the old big water, or the things that the dam has changed. But just in general, uh, with uh, everything's easier and easier because of the technology or, I mean, she had people throwing their watches in the river and that was the most technological thing on the trip where now it's all the, in regards to that experience, all the other noise around it. And I think it's still happening and we should all kind of put ourselves in that timeline. She was the product of her time. And I think we're a product of our time. And, and she has given us the advantage of her perspective. And look, I was right. I think that's something we should all take home with us as far as what's going on with the way things are encroaching on Georgie's world. It's the same thing with a sky ride into the little Colorado or this toilet bridge down on the West End there or the... Everything you encroach on down there is lost. It's never going to be the same. Yeah. No, I I envy her and her generation, and I, I'm grateful. You know, we got to see the very tail end of it. It was, for a while, Grand Canyon was the last of the Old West. But on, in a bigger sense, I think what, even to this day, I think what we're marketing is the nice thing about a river, Grand Canyon River trip, it's... it's um, People go down there, and and the good part is it puts you in touch with the planet Earth. You know, the, the planet Earth, I mean, when you're camping out, to to a degree, you get a sense of you're just on the planet Earth. And I, with, with the history of the Earth staring in the face there, but you're in touch with Earth. You know, the sun comes, just the natural world. Except uh, what the beauty of the Grand Canyon is, you're, it's, you're in the natural world and you're removed for however long it is, eight days. From your damn telephone. Yeah, 14 days, you know, 16 days, however long it is, you're taken away from all that electronic information that we're bombarded with now on a daily basis. Pretty soon we're going to have satellite cell service, I think, and that'll be the end of that. Everybody will have their iPhones down there. So, yeah, another encroachment. But, I mean, but our generation, here we are now, here we are, I mean, you really envy those guys, because their horizons were so much faster than ours yeah. are right now. And here, our generation, what's our task? Somehow, you know, it's all the more important 
you know, what, now here we got to deal with with climate change. We got to deal with, you know, are we, I mean, can we actually destroy the whole freaking planet? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, or are we, you know, how far away from the natural world can we get in our lives? Well, and it's up to our generation to stop that sky ride into the little Colorado. And indeed, it's up to the tribes and the, the whole human experience and community is the only way that uh, we can stretch it out as far as these uh, wilderness, or if it's not wilderness, uh, experiences that take you outside the box and put you on the real Mother Earth. I couldn't agree with you more. I like it a little rougher because it gets people away from their everyday life. You know, they have to learn that on the canyon that they can't do anything about anything, and uh, it's a person themselves and not how much money they got or who they are. And uh, the count if there was a regular group, if they come in, so many words, everybody on my boat is the same. Uh, is the same no matter what they do in life. It doesn't matter to me what they do. So if you're the president of the ditch sugar, I don't care, and nobody else cares either. Not while you're out there. With that, we'll close. And thank you so much, Lou. Thank you, Brian. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bookner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.